He's one of the the few superheroes, right? If if you're a part of superhero fandom, you've seen all these movies come out in recent years that are either Marvel or DC, whatever comic book you've read, right? Um, but Wonder Woman is unique in the fact that she's she doesn't need an alter ego, right? She uh, does kind of don something, but in the beginning, she's just herself, right? It's different from say a Batman or Superman or Spider Man, right? Can you imagine what it would be like if all of New York City knew who Spider-Man was and knew who his family was? Just think about that. Think about wonder, uh, like Spider-Man's wife going to the market. Psst, hey, there she is. Who's that? That's, that's Spider-Man's wife. Hey. <laughs> See, it, it would be different, and, and you'd wonder why these superheroes put on these alter egos, why they wear their masks, right? It's the same way uh, you hear in some of these climactic moments is that they're trying to protect those that are closest to them, right? They're trying to uh, keep the world that they're trying to save out there, and they're trying to live their regular lives uh, without the mask and keep that protected. Similarly, for the police department, what's interesting is that very rarely does a local police department, local police officer, um, does he serve in the place that he lives. It's, it's almost required by local officers that they would uh, serve and protect in an outside community so that they could protect their own families, so that the places that they're sworn to protect would be uh, outside of the realm of their own home. And so we see that there's this realm that uh, they're trying to save the world, protect and serve, and yet apart from that, uh, they have their own private space. When we talk about church in the wild, and as we've been trekking through this series, we've talked, at the, we've talked about the wild as someplace out there. We've talked about the place that we do mission, the place that we, uh, we join in God's work in saving the world, Right? And then it's interesting because here we get to chapter 3 and Peter actually shifts the focus from out there to right here. And he speaks about something that's deeply intimate and personal, which is, which is marriage. And in chapter 3, he's addressing wives and, and husbands. And so let's get into that. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 12. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their lives, by the way they live their lives when they observe your pure and reverent lives. Uh, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic, love one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult with insult, 
but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and I just pray that as deeply personal and as intimate as this is, as close to home as it is for us, that we would take this, whether we are married, whether we're husbands or wives, whether we're single, whether we're looking to be married, whether we're divorced or widowed, God, that you would speak a word to us about what it means to not just be the church in the wild, but also when the wild is your home. Would you speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I got this assignment that I was going to be preaching this text, I, uh, it was, I was not the most excited to get this um, for a few different reasons. One, I've only been married a little less than a year. Uh, and so what do I know and what authority do I have to be teaching about marriage? And then second, I've only been married a year. Uh, and so with that, uh, I mean, if I'm honest, within the first year, you're going to have bumps and bruises and uh, we're going like, to scrape uh, against each other as we're trying to understand who we are. And as wonderful as it is, there's an overwhelming task to speak as though I had it all together, which of course I don't. And when I feel like I have it all together, then what God does is uh, he takes the rug out from under me like a nine-year-old pulling a prank on someone. And so that's how I feel. And yet, when I look at God's word, I can rest assured that my authority uh, or the authority behind this message doesn't come from me and it doesn't come from my fitness to give this message, but uh, solely on the authority of God's word. And so as I speak to you today, I'm speaking from what Peter, uh, as inspired by God, would have you guys to know. And I pray that through that, God would be speaking a word to all of us as a community. Does that make sense? So we pick it up uh, in 1 Peter 3, chapter, or, uh, verse 1, and he begins, in the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. In the same way. Now, if we do a quick recap on what we talked about last week, we talked about this resistance. And there's a few different relationships that Pastor John had preached about. Uh, one, of us, uh, one of them was being civ- citizens in authority, under authority, to the government. And then the other relationship was slaves to their masters. And we talked about, yes, that was in the context of their time. But we get to chapter 3, verse 1, and Peter says, In the same way, wives, submit to your husbands. Now, ladies, if I'm hearing you guys correctly, I can be thinking what you're thinking. Peter, what do you mean in the same way? In we're supposed to mit- submit to our husbands in the same way that slaves submitted to their masters? What are you trying to say, Peter? Are we pawns? Are we, are we slaves? What's going on there? And Peter, I don't know if you know, is often known in the scriptures for putting his foot in his mouth. And so let me pick Peter up from under the bus and try to help to bring some light on this situation. So Peter's belief, um, if, we, if we take it back to last week, Peter's belief 
uh, in government and in slaves is that uh, slave masters, if you will, is that it's not all bad, right? That governments have a responsibility to bring justice, to do what is good, uh, but also to enforce laws against those that are evil. Um, but even in saying that, he does make room for the fact that there may be people that are unjust. There may be governments that are unjust. And there may be slave masters that are cruel. And so he's writing with that in mind as well. And remember that the focus, the importance, is on that we should do good when we are persecuted, and that is our resistance, right? That through God's truth, we would have this goodness, and that that would be our retaliation, that our resistance is to do good even when it hurts. And that in that, we become more like Jesus, because Jesus did good. No one has any qualms about that, right? And nobody gets upset with someone like a Mr. Rogers, but they put Jesus on the cross because of who he was and what he said. Who he claimed he was and what he was doing, right? And so Peter says, in this way, wives are to submit to their husbands. Now, I know that gets dicey because we have a lot of different notions when we think about submission. And we think about people that we are supposed to submit to, a la husbands, that have not always been the best example of the quintessential husband. They've not always exemplified Jesus, right? And so let me kind of help us in, ter- in terms of thinking about what submission is and what submission isn't, right? Um, and so within something as dicey as this, I think it's important to know that um, submission to husbands, if you are a wife here, is not because husbands deserve it or that they're worthy of it any more than a slave master is worthy of their slave submission or that a government is worthy of their citizen submission. Does that make sense? God, in his own unique way, has appointed uh, certain structures and roles, right? And that Christ would be the head Uh, of the church, that the church would submit to Christ, and likewise, that wives would submit to their husbands. Does that make sense? Yes. Submission also uh, used here is that they would conduct themselves in a pure and reverent way, right? And that word reverence means fear. And so submission, I think is important to know, is that it's not out of fear of your husband or of your government, or of your slave master, right? That we, when we submit out of fear, that our submission is in fear of God. Does that make sense? If we look at verse 6, we're actually told by Peter that we should not, that we should do good and not fear any intimidation from other men. And that when we fear, it actually should be towards God. And so in this submission, in this relationship, as wives not me being a wife, but as wives, um, when you submit, that fear that you submit out of is strictly and solely towards God. Okay? And submission does not mean that women are inferior to men. God created both male and female equal uh, in his sight. If we go back to the creation story, Genesis 127, it tells us beautifully how we were made, right? And if we go to Galatians, we find that 
male and female, so husbands and wives, are both one in Christ. And in verse 7, Peter says that we're co-heirs of grace, meaning that we have equal position with, in terms of our destiny. We're all going in Christ in the same place. And so we have equal footing in terms of this community. What we have known it to be is God's blended family. We are all coming to the table as equals, not as one inferior or subordinate to another. And yet out of that, we still have submission. Submission can be seen as good when it allows us to freely live out our distinct roles. An example of that would be childbirth, right? Like men do not bear children. Women bear children. That is uniquely suited for the wife and for women in general. And I think what beautifully describes that is Jesus. Jesus perfectly submitted to the Father. Now, when we think about submission, you may think of limitations or restrictions, but I think it's important to know that as Jesus submitted to the Father, it didn't restrict him, and it didn't limit who Jesus was, but it actually allowed Jesus to be everything he was and is today. That in his submission, submitting perfectly to the Father, he would be the Son of God and the second person of the Trinity, known as Redeemer and Savior of the world, calling us to himself by redeeming our lives with his blood. And it's the distinct role within the Trinity that we see. If we think about God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not one of them is uh, subordinate to the other, but they're all in beautiful submission. Jesus submitting to the Father, the Holy Spirit being the, exa- the example, the expression of that love, all with their distinct roles and functions, right? So hopefully we get this sense of what submission is, and hopefully that helps us. Now we get the sense here that as we're reading this, Peter is writing to wives that have husbands that may or may not be believers. During that time, um, the first century, as the, cr- the church was being started, that droves and scores of people were coming to faith in Jesus, which meant that you may have a, a woman, a wife, who came to faith in Jesus, but yet her household was still left uh, not believing, that they had not, not yet heard of the gospel of Jesus. And so Peter is keeping that in mind. And he says that the hope of their submission and their conduct would be that they would win over their spouses, that they would actually through their gentle, quiet spirits, that they would win their husbands over without even a word, without even saying a word. That husbands would see that submission, that they would see their conduct, and out of that, they would come to know Christ. I'm not sure where everyone is this morning in in their relationships, their marriages. I can't even begin to fathom uh, where some of us are on the spectrum in terms of hurt that has been dealt because we've submitted ourselves. But I think, and I want to submit to you, that whatever God has in mind, in terms of your current relationship, I I, I want to submit to you that God's plan for that is good. That wherever he's uniquely placed you in that relationship, and whatever that is, it's good. Whether you are uh, part of a family, whether you have a husband, whether you have a wife, that all of those plans are uniquely good in God's design. And that submission here is an expression of hope in God. And I hope you see that. 
right? So as Peter's writing, he says that the women of old, um, in that day, the women of old would hope those who hoped in God. They would submit. And then she, he, uh, Peter uses this example of Sarah. That Sarah did the same thing to her husband, Abraham, submitted to Abraham, and called him Lord. I think what God wants us to do as we reflect on that and why Peter wrote, kind of thinking past tense uh, in terms of history and traditions, that this is the way that women used to do it in days of old, I think what God wants us to hear this morning, especially to the wives, is that as God's chosen people, that we shouldn't be putting our hope in those relationships, in the other. That other being a husband, slave master, a government, a job, a family, an education, a degree. That we would have peace in those things. That we would be satisfied by those things. And I think when Peter writes, alluding to this hope in God, that when we hope in God, that it's not found in these places where we would be left empty. That it would never be enough for us. That when we hope in God, we trust that God is alone, is alone enough for us. That he can do for us what no other husband can, what no other wife can, what a job can't do, what reputation can't do, God can do. That we would po- put our hope in that even when things get difficult. Even when submission is hard to husbands who are non-believers, treating their wives unjust. And if we think about it, the end of chapter 2, so civilians, slaves, now wives, husbands, and everybody, we're all placed in these strategic relationships. Some of them we chose, yes. Others we don't get to choose, right? Think about it. You didn't get to choose the family that you were born in. You didn't get to choose your ethnicity. You didn't choose your cultural background, and yet God chose it for you. And out of that, there's something beautiful that he wants to do in that. That God has entrusted you in that place, in those relationships, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. And for some of you, you don't even need to say a word, as in this passage. But in order to do that, in order to win over folks without even a word, we need to adorn ourselves. We need to put on something. We need to decorate ourselves in a certain kind of way. When Peter uses this word adorn, it's the same word used for the world, the cosmos. Almost as if to say that what God had uniquely displayed out in the world when he was creating, uh, what he... Uh, beautifully ornamented in a beautiful way that we should take that same approach, that same pattern and adorn not our outside appearance but actually inside of us. That wives, you should adorn yourselves that that would be an inner work in the hidden part. Peter instructs wives that this is a beautifully decorated thing but not It's not your exterior beauty. Verse 3, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on uh, of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight 
very precious. That's drastically different from their day and age. During that day, remember the church in the wild, the Rome in the, the Roman Empire ruled the Middle Eastern and the Western world. And so in many ways, people lived and died under Roman rule. And in Rome, they had certain cultures and values that were distinct. And yet, they were so normative for everybody else. In that day, women were almost seen as subhuman. I have a word from Demosthenes in the 4th century, writing as a Roman. And he says, We men, speaking as a man, we have concubines for pleasure, female slaves for our daily needs, that's a sexual euphemism, and wives to give us legitimate children and to be guardians of our households. And if we think about that, he's basically saying that the wives, their purpose was to bear kids, keep the home tidy, to play house and bear kids. And yet we had other women on the side for our sexual pleasure, and to satisfy all of our other needs. This is the way of the world then, and in many cases, in many parts of the world today. Women are seen as lesser. There are communities in Pakistan where women aren't even allowed to get an education. And they are seen not just as subhuman, but as slaves. Over 80% of the sex sex slave trade is comprised of women and young women at that. This is going on in the world today. And so it's not too distinct from the world that we knew or that we read about then. And even in America, if we think about it, plenty of women adorn themselves externally to attract attention. And it's all for the sake of attention, right? For women that become wives, I know in many instances, women become wives to end up being trophy wives for their husbands. That they're supposed to look a certain kind of way and display a certain kind of aura about them so that every other man would want them. And that is sad, and yet that is true in many cases. But Peter says, not so for the children of God for the people of God, for those that are wives, the adorning has to be on the inside. The hidden person which is on the inside of the heart. Now hear me clearly. I'm not saying that we should not care about how we dress or what we put on. All right, I can imagine next Sunday we all come in here looking kind of ratchet. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you don't take care what I am saying is that that should never take precedence over our inner adorning. How we adorn our inward person. The hidden person, as one scholar says, it's not the inner side of a person, but the whole human being as it is determined from within. And if I think about this, that no other religion addresses this issue of those the inner person than Christianity. No other religion addresses that. Uh, if we think about it, in a sexist and uh, many times over-sexualized culture, what we find is that many wives, many women, get their sense of worth in the way that their husbands think about them, in the way that their husbands treat them. And so in a way, they have to adorn themselves uh, to be able to receive that attention and love that they need. Their need 
that they're trying to meet is to be loved and to be accepted. And so they're trying to do that in every way possible. And so there are many women that inside are dying, but outside are ex- like externally adorned in such a way to be that trophy wife in order to get that felt need to feel love, to feel accepted. And so they adorn themselves in a certain kind of way, right? And women, they use sex to get love many times. And men, on the opposite, they use the word love in order to get sex. And it's kind of how this culture is spread. Yet Christianity says this, that Jesus... Jesus says to us that your worth is not in what your husband can give you or you performing for your husband. Jesus says that I love you and I've proven it by dying for you. That your worth is not in what you do for your husband or your external adornment, but what I've done for you and what I've proven to you by giving up my life to bring you into my family. God's family, where his spirit begins to replace our hearts and that we become and think more and feel more like God, more like Jesus. So more than wives looking a certain kind of way, Jesus is calling uh, for us, for wives here in this room, for women in this room to adorn ourselves, um, that we would receive his love on the inside and that that love is far greater than anything we can see, we can receive from any man. Right? Think about it. I mean, if I'm honest, you can seek all of those things. You can seek the husband, and you will find satisfaction, uh, but he's still going to disappoint you. He's still going to fall short. Right? I wish I could say that in a year of marriage, I I was the prototypical, the the dreamy husband. And I wish I could say uh, that what my wife was praying for when she was single that a husband would be. I, 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 I wish I could be everything uh, that her heart had desired. And I wish that on my best days that I've selfless, when I've selflessly served and loved my wife, that that was enough. But I've come to find out in a year it's not. But I also have known that the sweetest times in our devotion, um, when my wife has been with Virginia, Uh, when she has been uh, seeking and near to the Lord, that that has been the sweetest time, not just in serving her, but being with her. Like that, I know for my wife is enough. And that is more than I can ever provide. That's more than I could ever give her. For the wives here, for the women, I want to ask you, how open are you to being shaped by Jesus' love for you? Is that enough? Is Jesus' love enough for you? Enough so that you don't have to seek it anywhere else. Not in a husband, not in a relationship, not in a job, and not in any kind of platform you can build for you. Is Jesus' love enough for you? Now we shift focus. Um, And in verse 7, Peter addresses the husbands. So he speaks to the husbands. Uh, He tells 
the husbands that we should live with our wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as a weaker vessel. Obviously, Peter has not seen the release of Wonder Woman. All right? Um, but when we think about weaker vessel, all we're saying, well, what we're not saying is that women are in any way uh, inferior intellectually, in terms of ability, capability, to men. In no way are women different, right? Men just happen to have a little bit more testosterone. And so, yeah, I'll let you guys think about that. Um, and so we should live with our wives in an understanding way. So I figured this out kind of, I'm still, I still wrestle with this, uh, in my marriage, uh, that we should live with our wives in an understanding way. So in my mind, I am a uh, logical type A personality. I also teach. And so in my mind, you have uh, an issue. I'm a problem solver. I'm, I'm solve the problem, right? Uh, and so early on in my marriage, uh, and I want to say early on last week, uh, <laughs> My wife would often come to me with concerns that she has, right? And, and I'm feeling a certain kind of way, and then this happened, and, and I'm just like, sure. And in my mind, my problem-solving skills start to kick in. And I'm just like, ha, huh, it's easy. I got this, right? You just need to wake up earlier. Or you should say this. Or whatever. Fill in the blank. I've come to find out now that that's not the, that's not the, that's not going to happen, right? It's not going to work for her. It's not going to resonate with her. And what I've come to find out in a year of marriage is that uh, my problem-solving sol skills in terms of understanding um, my wife is a fail. What she really wants me to do is hear her out so she can get something off her chest, and then for me to hug her, and then we go to sleep. That's that's it. That's it. That's all it is. Um, and yet that's how I am to be treating my wife in that understanding way. For everyone else, um, it may be different, right? But Peter is addressing husbands that in that kind of air, we should be living with our wives in that understanding kind of way. Um, that we can't handle our wives the way that we would our friends, right? And then he uses this word that we're co-heirs of grace. Uh, husbands in the room, like, we all need grace. We know that. And as we come to God, to receive something from him. When I'm saying grace, I, I just mean undeserved favor or God's riches at Christ's expense, right? Uh, when I'm saying grace, I, I, I'm just saying um, that we need something from God. We, kn we know we don't deserve it, and yet we receive it, but God visits us. He, he treats us in our own personal way, right? And then as we receive that grace in our own personal way, we should redirect that compassion that God had towards us, towards our wives in that same unique way. And that that's how we should operate. That's how we should conduct ourselves with our wives. And that when we withhold this grace from our wives, um, Peter says that we can expect that our prayers to be hindered, right? Now, it seems harsh, but it makes perfect sense. If God has entrusted with us these strategic, these, these relationships, marriage, and we dishonor our wife, or uh, we are unjust in the home, either in not showing them honor, not caring for them, uh, and not living with them in an understanding way, that God is not going to listen to us. Right? That we should do this so that, and not just so that, we should do that for the sake of our wives, um, but so that our prayers are not hindered. So husbands... Do yourselves and your marriages a favor by honoring your wife, showing compassion to them, 
living with them in an understanding way. Right? Finally, this is a word for everybody. And the rest of this, from er, verses uh, 8 through 12, Peter exhorts all of us to live in the good faith of Christian conduct, edifying one another, um, even when it gets hard uh, by being a blessing to the world. Uh, Verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So we see unity, sympathy, compassion, humility, right? Uh, Foundations of Christian ethics, and yet this is how we're supposed to treat um, our brothers and sisters. We get to verse 9, and we get this hint that when we're insulted or when we're reviled, meaning that it may be coming from the outside. We may be experiencing this at the hands of people that are not Christian. And so when we do that, instead of reviling them, Speaking a threat against them, we, we bless. And then Peter says, to this you were called, that you may inherit a blessing. Right? And in some ways, it reverts back to what we read last week in chapter 2. That all of this, and then he goes on to quote Psalm 34, is the character of Christ. That when evil was spoken about him, he didn't respond with evil. No deceit was found in his mouth. And yet when people blasted threats to him, he just entrusted to the, himself to the one who judges justly. Right? And he took up death for us. And then by his wounds, we are healed. Here's the thing, right? Some of us are, are mothers. Some of us are, are single mothers. Some of us are wives. Some of us are trying to hold all of this together. We're husbands. We're singles. Um, we're workers. Uh, we're, we're just trying to make it here in this world I think what Peter has to share with us, when we talk about being called to bless, I think it's uniquely important to know that what your co-workers need to see, what your children need to see, is not a quick three-step solution towards parenting your kids or being the, the best co-worker, right? Being the best teacher. It's not a one-fix-all solution. What we need is to be conformed into the character of Jesus, What do your kids need more during their teenage years? It's not helpful parenting tactics. They need need you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And when I mean conformed, I mean to be made similar like, right? That they would align with conforming. That we would conform our lives, our character, our behavior to that of Christ. That as we do that, We see change. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't preach the gospel. Yes, we should preach the gospel. But what good is preaching when our lives look nothing like Christ? That we would be that kind of church, New City. That as we gather together, we live out this character. We should pray for that. And then Peter obviously quotes Psalm 34. And he talks about good days. You want to see good days, love life, see good days. Those good days that he speaks of, in light of the witness of Scripture, he's talking about not your best life now. He's talking about your best life to come. In light of eternity, how we should live our lives now. Right? 
And that is our, our, a righteous living, one that conforms into the image of Jesus. Again, it's not a one-step solution. It's not a three-step process. It's not a one-fix-all. This is a daily thing. This is something that requires us to be attentive to what God is doing in our life, to be led by the Spirit day in and day out, that we are reminded of ways in which we dishonor God with our behavior and ways in which we are redirected by grace to, to Jesus and letting, letting him speak into our lives what we should and what we should not do, right? I'm reminded of this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and uh, he's a German, uh, grew up early 20th century, so 1900s, um, and he was known for the, a lot of the things that he's done in terms of contributing to uh, Christian education and theology and all of this kind of stuff. Excuse <coughs> me. But one of the things that I love about him is uh, as a pasty-faced white guy who's a German, uh, during World War II, he stood toe-to-toe against the Third Reich mu- uh, movement um, and the Nazis. And that towards the end of his life, he would speak out that Christianity uh, is not about just going with the flow. And it's not just uh, adhering to a bunch of rituals, which the church at large was doing at the time in Germany, and turning their face towards anti-Semitism and prejudice uh, at the hands of Jews. He, sp- he spoke out against that. He formed what was known as the Confessing Church and says that this is the true church that honors and loves their neighbors, that, that sticks up for them when they don't have a voice for themselves. And in that, uh, the Nazis had issues and qualms with him. Um, he actually was a part of a, an assassination attempt on Hitler's life and was caught for it. And uh, two weeks after World War II, he was hung. He was in a concentration camp for 14 months, and he was hung. One of the things um, that was fascinating about his life is that the surgeon that witnessed his hanging, he says this, in in all of my years, I've never seen somebody totally surrendered to God. And the way that this man was, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Right? Oh, would we be that kind of people? That we would surrender ourselves even when it doesn't look good, even when we are suffering, even when we are uh, treated unjustly. Because in that, we're following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just seal up the words that we've heard this morning thinking more intimately of wives and then husbands. But I pray that this would be a word for everybody, that we would live out our, our calling to be a blessing, not just in our marriages, but also in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, on our schools, in every facet of our life, that we would be a blessing. Jesus, that would you, you would use us, our pure and reverent conduct, our gentleness, our inner adorning, that we would win people over, that we would influence culture that is so vastly against Christianity. Jesus, would you just do a work in us, not for the sake of winning people, 
but just because we want to be like you. There's a need for us to know you more intimately, to be like you. And so, Jesus, would you conform us to yourself? Would you bring us in alignment with not just cultural Christianity or comfortable Christianity, but a Christianity that says we will resist when things get difficult. And we'll do that through our good, pure conduct, as you did, Jesus. Would you lead us in that way? In Christ's name.